Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan Swartz. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And if you can't tell, I just got back from a weekend with middle schoolers. I think a little bit of it might have rubbed off on me in some capacity. And, and honestly, I, I hope more than just the dress code rubbed off on me. Uh, I hope that more than just the, uh, as they call it, word vomit, uh, the stream of consciousness rubbed off on me. I hope that those moments of blinding clarity where they say something so profound, you're like, that had to be the Holy Spirit because no middle schooler should say that. I hope that's the part that rubbed off on me. Amen? Amen. Well, uh, we're going to ask God for that blinding clarity in a moment. Before we do, having spent some time with middle schoolers, I thought back on some of my own time as a middle school and elementary student, and I wanted to ask if you guys have ever had the same experience that I have. Has anyone here, by a show of hands, auditioned for a play or been uh, a part of a sports team where the coach was the parent of someone on the team? Has anyone ever done that? It's really awesome, isn't it? It's just the best. No, it's the worst. Because there is nothing that you can do that can make them see you compared to their kid. Right? I mean, put a picture. There's a picture of beautiful Dan, clearly star athlete and, and, and award-winning thespian. And yet, I never got to be point guard. He put me at center. Man, I could drain threes and he put me at center. It's not fair. And I got the patches on my, what are those patches on my shirt? What role did I get? I should have put up, there's another picture of me in the very back where you can just see like my eyebrow because it's basically the role I got. And, and the truth is, whether you've been in this scenario or not, you've experienced favoritism, whether it's a parent and their kid or there's just someone the coach likes more than you, you've experienced this where you're not the favorite and it feels like there's nothing you can do to get them to notice how val valuable you are to the team. Right? We've all experienced this. So, uh, and if you haven't, have some of you not experienced this? Because if so, you're the favorite, and we're all furious with you. But in all seriousness, I think we can agree that favoritism is not a good thing. That favoritism causes problems, and not just on the sports field, not just in theater, but everywhere. And so this morning, it brings us to a question. Well, wait a minute, if favoritism is bad, then how come, as we've been walking through Genesis, I feel like every major character has a favorite? Have you noticed this? That as we walk through the book of Genesis, it's like we can clearly identify, oh, that's the favorite kid. Oh, that's the favorite kid. Oh, that guy gets special privileges. So what do we do with that? Well, that is the question we're going to dive into this morning. We're going to ask, how does God want us to respond to the favoritism we see in Scripture? And what can we learn from these families that God is using to bless the world? And so since we're going to be wrestling with uh, a tough topic this morning, I'm going to ask one more time for you to pray with me as we uh, compel God to speak through his word. So please pray with me. Lord Jesus, may the words of my mouth and all of the thoughts of all of our hearts be precious in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bible, please open to Genesis chapter 29, because that's where we're going to be this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, I invite you to grab one off the back table as you leave, because we want you to take one home as our gift to you. 
Uh, and so we're going to jump back into this story of Jacob, but instead of focusing in on him, we're going to focus in on his two, yes, I said two, wives. And it's going to be a good time. And so let's start here in Genesis chapter 29. And if you don't know the story of Jacob, then man, you're going to want to read it after this. So Genesis 29, we'll start in verse 31. It says, when Leah saw, or excuse me, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. So Leah gave birth, or became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. Let's stop there for a moment and think about what we just read. Because the first thing that we notice is something that should draw some other things to mind, right? It's that the Lord noticed Leah in her misery, right? God saw her. And while that is an awesome thing for us to notice and absolutely true, if we were an Israelite reading this, we wouldn't only think about Leah. We would be thinking about someone else who was noticed in her misery, someone else that the Lord saw and heard, if you remember back to the story of Abraham, you'll remember Caitlin preached a sermon on Ishmael. And in that story, Hagar is seen by God and she is heard by God. She names him the God who sees me and the God who hears me. And so for an Israelite who's reading this, they're going to be like, oh, I remember that. Uh-oh. Is this going to play out like that did? Oh, boy. And so they are already seeing where this story is headed, and I, want, I don't want you guys to miss it because this isn't the only hint that is dropped here. Uh, but before we move past it, recognize what they wouldn't have missed, that God sees us in our moments where we feel worthless. That isn't a note for you to write down. I didn't give you a blank because Caitlin preached a whole sermon on it, and I'm not going to preach it again. But if you missed it, go back and listen to it and write that down. God sees us in the moments where we feel worthless. Unfortunately for Leah, it doesn't stop there because God sees her, God notices her, and God blesses her with a child. But look at what she says afterward, right? She has her child. She names him Reuben. She says, the Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. Guys, if you have a messed up relationship, adding a kid to it does not fix it. And yet that's what Leah is hoping, right? God notices her, and God chooses to bless her. He gives her a child, which is a blessing. But it's not going to fix her relationship with Jacob. And yet that is what she focuses on. And we see this because look what happens next. She has another child, right? It says, uh, verse 33, she soon became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, the Lord has heard that I was unloved, and he's given me another son. She wouldn't say that if the first son had fixed the problem. She's still unloved with this second son, and she's still hoping maybe this one will do it. Maybe now my husband will love me. Because if you don't remember, she's the one who married Jacob first when he really wanted to marry her sister. She's stuck in a tough spot, and she's praying that maybe now my husband will love me. And God's saying, I'm going to bless you, but I'm never saying that I'm going to fix your relationship with your husband with these kids. And yet it continues, verse 34, she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. She named him Levi, for she said, surely this time my husband will feel affection for me since I've given him three sons. 
Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. Do you see what's happening here? That God is blessing Leah. He is seeing her and he is responding by giving her a gift. But she is so focused on her situation. She's focused on the thing that God isn't solving, that she's trying to take all the blessings God is giving her and put a weight on them that they're not designed to carry. None of these children are designed to make her relationship with Jacob perfect. But that's all she can think about. And so not only is she missing the blessing of these children, she's focusing on a relationship with Jacob and hoping that the children will fix it. It's ruining her relationship with the children. It's affecting her relationship with her husband. And most importantly, it's causing her to misunderstand what God is doing in her life. And so I want you to write this down. It says, focusing on favor hinders our relationships with God and each other. And that note, that sermon note is going to last us a while because it's not just here that we see this. We see this over and over again in this story as the characters try to find their worth. They keep saying, look at me, look at me. I can play point guard, pick me, I'm good enough. When that's not what God is doing. And so remember that focusing on favor, trying to find our worth in all the things around us and the blessings God gives us can have a negative impact on our relationships with God and with others. And uh, we see that. Let's keep going and see what it looks like, right? Because Leah has these four children and she gets to the last one and she says, now I will praise the Lord. But unfortunately, as we continue reading, we see she still doesn't get it. She's not praising God that she had a fourth son. She's praising God that maybe this fourth son will get my husband to love me. And it's not just her. In, ver- in chapter 30, verse 1, it says, when Rachel saw she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister, and she pleaded with Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Uh, I'm glad I'm not Jacob in this scenario. In fact, uh, I've never been more happy I only married one woman. Guys, that's funny. That killed in the first service. Come on. Seriously, though, what is he supposed to say to this? Like, this is a no-win question. There is no response he can say to this. Like, yes, honey, I will. Nope. No, honey, I won't. Nope. And so he gets mad, right? He doesn't handle this great, but I don't know what he was supposed to do. It says, Jacob became furious with Rachel. Am I God, he asked? He's the one who has kept you from having children. And while we can laugh at my jokes or not, what the ancient Israelites would have done here is been like, oh, I remember another woman who had trouble getting pregnant when God said she would. I remember the story that we were thinking of just a minute ago with, with someone named Hagar. Oh, remember Abraham and Sarai? She had a great idea. Maybe Rachel will have the same one. And I don't know if Jacob like, didn't give his family history, didn't talk to Rachel about any of this, but it's kind of mind-blowing that she does the exact same thing. Maybe lightning won't strike twice. What happens? Well, just like with Sarah and Hagar, Rachel says to her husband, take my maid Bilhah and sleep with her, and she will bear children for me, because it worked so well last time. And through her, I can have a family too. And so Rachel gives her servant to Jacob as a wife, and she becomes pregnant and presents him with a son, and Rachel names him Dan. For she said, God has vindicated me. Oh, boy. 
he has heard my request and given me a son. And then Bilhah became pregnant again and gave Jacob a second son, and Rachel named him Naphtali, for she said, I have struggled with my sister, and I'm winning. Hoo boy. So we've got a lot here. I'm going to give you two things. And the first is that when we're reading narrative scripture like the book of Genesis, we have to recognize that not everything the characters say about God is true. Right? They are just characters speaking. Nowhere in here does it say, God says, hey, I'm vindicating you. This was a great job. Well done. In fact, we know from the whole Sarah and Hagar thing that this is not a good idea. And yet we see Rachel here saying, woohoo, I did it good. I got a kid. It's totally my kid and not someone else's. And so we have to remember that not everything that these characters say about God is true. We have to see what's true about God's character from what he has done and what he has said everywhere else in Scripture. So that's really important because what do we know about searching for favor? It hinders our relationship with God and with others. And these women continue to misrepresent what God is doing in their lives. That's the first thing. The second thing is we see what effect it's having on this family. I have wrestled with my sister and I'm winning? Come on! First of all, no you're not. You don't have any kids yet. You just pulled someone else into this. You made it from a two-wife scenario to a three-wife scenario, which is not winning for anyone. And secondly, like, what about these poor kids? Once again, they're being used as pawns in a game that is not working. They're trying to earn the favor of Jacob through these children, and everyone suffers. But thankfully, it stops there, and everyone has a happy ending. No. No, it continues, because next we say, verse 9, Meanwhile, Leah realized she wasn't getting pregnant anymore, so if Rachel can do it, I can do it. And she took her servant Zilpha and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Soon, Zilpha presented him with a son. Why not a fourth? And so Leah named him Gad, for she said, how fortunate I am. And then Zilpha gave Jacob a second son. Leah named him Asher, for she said, what joy is mine? Now the other women will celebrate with me. I have news for Leah. No, they will not, because no one is coming over, because there are four wives and one husband and a bunch of stepchildren living under one roof, and no one is happy. Right? Can you imagine visiting for dinner? No, thank you. Are you seeing the pattern here, friends? Are you seeing God continually blessing this family with gifts and doing what he said he would do? He said, I'm going to turn Abraham into a great nation. This is the start of those 12 tribes. And yet these, these women and this family are ignorant of it because they're so busy saying, I'm worth it. Pick me. Pick me. I'm good enough. Look at all the kids I provided for you. And people are getting hurt in the process. And it doesn't stop there. In fact, we have arrived at my favorite part. And I say favorite part because this is like the soap opera moment. If you thought that Genesis was boring, if you thought the Old Testament was boring, you have not cracked open to this portion, okay? If they don't make this into a made-for-TV movie, they're doing something wrong. Because listen to this. One day during the wheat harvest, Reuben found some mandrakes growing in a field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Rachel begged Leah, please, give me some of your son's mandrakes. And I want you to picture Leah's face as she says this. But Leah angrily replied, wasn't it enough that you stole my husband? Now you will steal my son's mandrakes too? 
Come on. The look I am picturing would slay thousands. This is sister on sister. I've gotten looks from my wife that are scary, but I'm still standing. This look would, duh. And yet, for an Israelite, they're not just caught up in this look. They're remembering another story. They're remembering the man in this scenario, Jacob, and the time he bought Esau's birthright for a bowl of stew. And they are reminded, as we should be, that again and again and again, we are seeing the same thing play out, right? God says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And the family that he's chosen screws it up. They are just as much in need of a savior as the rest of the world, and they show it to us time and time again. And here is no exception. Well, what do you think happens? Jacob comes home, and we see it so clearly right here, right? How screwed up is this? I don't even have to preach this. It preaches itself. Jacob comes home that evening, or excuse me, Rachel answers, I will let Jacob sleep with you tonight if you give me some of your son's mandrakes. And so that evening, as Jacob is coming home from the fields, Leah went out to meet him. You must come and sleep with me tonight, she said. I have paid for you with some mandrakes that my son found. Do I have to say anything? Do you see it again? Do you see how far this family has fallen and how messed up this struggle over worth has gotten? And so even in the midst of that, we see that God hasn't forgotten Leah. God is not ignorant of her situation. He is still doing something in the midst of this if only we have eyes to see it. Because that night, It says, God answered Leah's prayers in verse 17. She became pregnant again and gave birth to a fifth son for Jacob. She named him Issachar, for she said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband as a wife. No, he has not. Again, come on. And then Leah became pregnant again, and she gave birth to a sixth son for Jacob. She named him Zebulun, for she said, God has given me a good reward. And we see it again. Now my husband will treat me with respect for I've given him six sons. And later she gave birth to a daughter as well and named her Dinah. I don't think we have to say it again, but I think you guys have seen it. This struggle for worth, fighting over who is the favorite, over who has value because of the children that they provide, is destroying this family. And we are left with the task of saying, what does this mean for us and what do we do about it? Because the beautiful thing is this next verse, if this next verse was the last verse we heard, we would think this is a story of beauty and redemption, and that's it. Listen to this next verse. Then God remembered Rachel's plight and answered her prayers by enabling her to have children. And she said, God has removed my disgrace. That's beautiful. And I could end there and and teach a sermon about how we shouldn't play favorites, but God's going to provide, and in the end, your disgrace is removed, and God always shows up. But look what she says next. It doesn't end there. She says, she said, uh, and she named him Joseph, for she said, may the Lord add yet another son to my family. The name Joseph means may he add. So she got the child she had been waiting for. She basically gets the promise just like Sarah did, and she names the kid, I hope I have another kid. 
because I want to keep my spot as the favorite because it's important to me, not that I love this child, but that my husband thinks I'm the best. Friends, in this struggle for worth, we see only heartbreak. And we see it no more clear than what happens next. Because the last child added to this family, Rachel gets what she asked for. If we skip forward to chapter 35, we see Rachel once again is pregnant. And it says, leaving Bethel, Jacob and his clan moved on toward Ephrath. But Rachel went into labor while they were still some distance away. Her labor pains were intense. And after a very hard delivery, the midwife finally exclaimed, don't be afraid, you have another son. But Rachel isn't going to make it through this delivery. And so rather than being overjoyed that she's beating her sister like she wanted to, she names this the son of my sorrow. Because all she knows is the sorrow of fighting a fight that wasn't worth fighting in the first place. All she knows is that now she's never going to be good enough. All she knows is that this is it. And her husband doesn't want to remember this kid like that, so he names him Benjamin, the son of my right hand, or the son of my strength. And this is where we get the 12 sons of Jacob. And so we're left with the question, what does God want us to do with this? Why do we have this story where favoritism is so apparent? Why does God put this in here? And why does it seem like God plays favorites too? Last week, Pastor Chris invited us to wrestle with God when we come to those points in Scripture in our lives where we don't know what to do or we don't understand, where we seem to be questioning God's character. And so I tried to do this as I came to this point in writing this sermon. I tried to wrestle with, God, what are you trying to say? Why do you put this in here? And I was reminded as I did that what God has been doing through the rest of Genesis. I was reminded in the garden where humans first fell, that God had a plan and a purpose. I was reminded that with Noah and the ark, where God is going to wipe out all of humanity, he still saved some for a purpose. I was reminded that with Abraham himself, the story that this story keeps pointing back to over and over and over again, God made a promise that he's going to bless all the nations of the earth through this family. And I was reminded that as we wrestle with questions like, God, why do you do this? Why do you put Leah in a marriage that she will never be truly loved in? God, why do you put these children and choose to use a, a family like this to build your kingdom? And God, why do you let me grow up in New Brighton, Minnesota and let my sponsor kid grow up in Juarez, Mexico? Why do you do that? And as I wrestled with those and thought about the trajectory of Genesis, I was reminded that when we wrestle, all of Genesis points forward to Jesus. It keeps reminding us, hey, what's happening here is for a purpose, and that purpose is fulfilled in Jesus. And so what I tell my students when they wrestle with things, and I try to tell myself, is when you have to wrestle with something about God, take it to Jesus. And so to end our time today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take this story and take it forward to Jesus. You see, in the book of John, chapter 9, Jesus hits at what we're talking about. See, in, in Mark chapter 9, you can put it on the screen, Jesus encounters a man who is blind from birth. And the disciples ask the same question that we're asking. They say, whose fault is it that this guy was put in this situation? Why is this guy blind? Is it his fault for his sin, or is it his parents' fault for their sin? They see two options. Somebody screwed up. 
And do you see what Jesus says? I think Jesus looked at them with the same intensity that Leah looked at Rachel, but it wasn't anger, it was love. And Jesus says, it's not about this guy's sin or his parents' sin. Yeah, they're both sinners. That's no surprise. But this happened so that the power of God would be displayed in his life. And what happens? Jesus heals the guy. And this blind man who would have gone from a burden on society as unworthy as you can be, able to give nothing back except hold his hands out for alms, everyone suddenly turns to him and he's the somebody, hey, weren't you blind? How did you receive your sight? And all he can do is say, Jesus. So how does this connect to our story? Well, if we were to follow this theme of favoritism that we saw before our story and through our story, we would continue to see it in the life of Joseph, Rachel's firstborn. Because after her death, Joseph is clearly shown to be the favorite of his father, Jacob. And not only is he the favorite, but he's the one that God is going to use to save his family. And God shows him this in a dream, and Jacob or Joseph tells his brothers, and they hate him even more for it. And so they throw him in a pit, and they want to kill him, and they sell him into slavery. And at the end of the story of Joseph, we see him facing his brothers again. And do you know what he says? He looks them in the eye, and he says, I don't even think I have this up on the screen, so I'm going to read it to you word for word. He says, what you intended for evil, God used to accomplish great good. What you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And when Jesus healed the blind man, he said, what you thought was evil, I am changing to show everyone that I am saving many lives. This isn't just true in the story of Joseph. This is not just true in the story of the blind man, but this is true for Leah and Rachel and you and I as well. Because we don't get to know why I get to live on this side of the border and my sponsor kid lives on the other side. I don't get the answer to that question. That is a mystery we get to continue to wrestle with of why me and why her. But what Jesus tells us in this passage and what Joseph tells us and what the answer is for Leah and Rachel is that God is going to display his power in our lives in whatever circumstance he puts us in. And our worth is not defined by who our dad is or where we were born or by what we do. Our worth is defined by something else. And if we're learning about what our worth is defined as from the book of Genesis, then we go back to the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created us in the image of God. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. Our worth was defined at the beginning of creation. And we did everything we could to tear it down, whether we started here or we started in Mexico, whether we started as the favorite or we started as the unloved person. We proved time and time again that we aren't worth anything. And yet Jesus himself proves our worth. 
Because what does it say in the book of John? It says that God showed how much we were worth. That God loved the world so much. God loved you and I so much that he gave his only son, the son of his right hand, the son that fulfills all of those promises and turned him into the son of his own sorrow because God himself suffered and died on our behalf. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, that shows us what our worth is. And so if you want to write this down, I don't want you to miss it. Your worth was defined at creation, but it was confirmed on the cross. Your worth was defined at creation, but it was confirmed at the cross. And I want to end with this. How does this relate to all those kids and Rachel and Leah? Well, if you were to go back and look at all the names that Rachel and Leah picked. We talked about some of the things they said, but the names that they picked actually had to do with what they were saying. And if you look at all of these names, you'll notice that a lot of them were screwed up, right? A lot of them had to do with them trying to get favor and worth from their husband, Jacob. But the truth is, while they didn't get that from Jacob, Jesus gives us all of this through Jesus, right? They wanted to be seen by God and seen by their husband. Well, we are seen by God. God heard us in our distress. He saw that we can't save ourselves and he sent Jesus. They wanted to be attached and joined to Jacob like nothing else. Well, we are part of the family of God. We are favorite children because of Jesus Christ. They wanted to have wages. They wanted to get their reward. Well, Jesus took our wages and gave us his. Friends, Jesus fulfills all of this. God gave his Benjamin so that he could become our Ben Onai. He suffered on our behalf so that we would have the worth of favorite children of God. And so, the truth is, whether you're Leah trapped in a marriage where you don't feel loved, or you're Ishmael sent out in the wilderness with just bread and water, and you're asking, God, I don't feel like I'm worth anything. Why is this happening? I think God has two answers for you. I think he says, this is happening so that the power of God might be displayed in your life. And he's saying you're not worthless. Because in Romans 9, this is what God says about us. He says, I'll call nobodies and I'll make them somebodies. I'll call the unloved and make them beloved. In the place where they're calling out your nobody, now they're calling you God's children. To Dan sitting on the bench wishing someone would notice him and give him some value. God's saying, I have given you my son. I have given you all the value in the world and you have a chance to be part of what I'm doing. You have a chance to be part of the promise I gave to Abraham. And I'll conclude with this. My, uh, my good friend posted this verse on Instagram a few months back and she posted a prayer with it. And I want to pray this prayer over us. Because the truth is that whoever you are, you need to know that Jesus gives you value. What I wish Leah had gotten is that she is God's masterpiece and she was not created for her husband and her husband wasn't created for her. She was created for God. and He sees her and knows her and values her enough to give his own life. And so, please receive this prayer. Lord, let me realize 
that my value does not change with my circumstances, with my mood, with my good or bad decisions, or with other people's opinions. My value is constant as your child. It was decided on the cross, and so it can never, ever change. Help me to hold that truth in my heart, cover it over with your love, and sear it with your spirit. Amen. Forever. And so now we are going to turn to a time of communion. But before we do, I just want you to write this down if you're a note taker and know this to be true, that Jesus takes you from nobody to somebody. That Jesus takes you from unloved to beloved. And that Jesus changes it so you're no longer nobody. He says you're mine. And so wherever you find yourself, know that God has a plan to show his power in your life. And you can accept that even today.